0: Will be from uh, Genesis four one through sixteen, and then we'll skip down to verses twenty three to twenty six. Genesis four one through sixteen, and also verses twenty three through twenty six. If you're using the pew Bible, that will be on page three. As we read, now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying. I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a one worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of the fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Verse 23. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I I say. I have killed the man for wounding me a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain has killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, I pray that our hearts and our minds are receptive to your Holy Spirit, working within us as we receive it this, in this morning's message. Give pastors strength to, pre- to preach the message that will help us to grow in the knowledge and the application of your word. In your holy name, amen.
1: Thank you, Richard. I have to say, he's a snappy dresser. (laughs) Chooses to dress very well. Today, we're going to continue our study here in Genesis. The study titled Proclaiming Jesus in the Beginning. Today, we're going to be looking at the power of Jesus here in chapters 4 and chapters 5. We're continuing uh, to approach Genesis in the same way that we have approached it thus far uh, in light of biblical theology. So we come to it asking who it was written for. And it was written for Israel that had been redeemed out of slavery in Egypt. It was written to help them understand their God who redeems, and that the redemption is greater than the physical redemption that they have experienced. It's also a spiritual redemption. And the Redeemer that they need is greater than this the physical Redeemer, Moses. They need a spiritual Redeemer as well. And throughout Moses' writing, he points us to Jesus Christ as God's plan and God's promised Redeemer. And we've also said that it's, it's the way Jesus reads Moses' writings, the way Jesus reads Genesis, the way He expects us to read Genesis, the way He even expected people during His time to read Genesis. Genesis was about Jesus. It was meant to point them to Jesus. It's meant to point us to Jesus. This is how He expected old covenant believers, and this is how He expects new covenant believers. Those who came before the cross, And those who have come after the cross to read Genesis. So we've been coming to Genesis to see Jesus Christ. And so we've seen Him as the eternal Creator. One who creates the world. We see that creation was made to proclaim Jesus Christ. We see that though sin entered the world, Jesus Christ is the answer to sin. And here we come to Genesis chapter 4 and 5. And my main point this morning is this. We proclaim Jesus as the power to change people and give life. We proclaim Jesus as the power to change people and give life. We're looking at the power of Jesus here. Now Moses was an excellent writer. He knew how to tell history and include all the the. Plot twists and build up to it, and the fact is, we can look throughout his writing and see that specifically two come to mind where where he just builds up to this climax and gives this plot twist. And one is Abraham when he's when he's asked by God, when he's commanded by God to sacrifice his son Isaac, and he takes him up and the knife is ready and it's coming down, and the angel comes and stops him. And they look over, and there's the rams caught in the thicket, and that's the substitute for Isaac. Moses knows how to create suspense and give this plot to us. The other one is, is the story of Joseph. How Joseph has these dreams at the beginning, and his, his father and his brothers ridicule him, and ultimately his brothers are going to kill him, but instead they, they decide to make some money off of him, and they sell him into slavery, and he goes and he serves in a very, very. Um, in a luxurious home, a royal home, and yet, and you think, okay, well, maybe things are going to turn around for Joseph, and yet, you know, the Potiphar's wife seeks to have a relationship with Joseph. He is not willing to do that. He gets thrown into prison. He's falsely accused, thrown into prison. Here he is sitting in the depths of prison. And then, yet, God went through these dreams that the two men down there tell him he interprets them. Eventually, he's remembered and brought before Pharaoh. He interprets Pharaoh's dream. Pharaoh makes him second command of all of Egypt. And eventually, there's this famine and his brothers have to come to Egypt. The brothers that sold him into slavery have to come to Egypt and beg him for food to care for their family and ultimately beg him for forgiveness. And he says, you... Planned it for evil, but God planned it for good. Moses knows how to write. He knows how to help us understand history and the plot twist. And when we come to Genesis 4, realize there is not a plot twist here. We come to Cain and we see his sin and it should not be surprising at all. We just ended with Genesis three: Adam and Eve choose to disobey God and God, cast them out of Eden. Cast them out, and now they are tainted with sin, and that death is now what they have because of their sin. And we come to Genesis four, and it's not surprising Moses just gets right to it. Cain is disobedient. Just like his parents, he's described as being tempted by sin. He's described as having this desire for sin. And sin itself is crouching at the door. And what do we see? His choice to sin. Humanity is sinful. Beginning with Genesis 3. And Cain and his children down through Lamech show this reality. And their desire to to embrace the serpent's temptation to be like God. In Genesis 3, this this becomes a greater and greater reality. As we look at Genesis 3, we see God who rightly gives the judgment of death to fallen humanity and is now copied unrighteously by Cain, desiring to be like God, He kills, He murders His brother according to His own desire, according to His own Judgment. He gives death to his brother out of envy and anger. Then God, who gives Cain a mark, a mark that both shows God's judgment and God's mercy, is then unrighteously copied by His creation, Lamech. Lamech himself pronounces his own mark over him. I have slain one. If Cain is going to be revenged sevenfold, I'll be revenged seventy times this all shows humanity's sinfulness that it is real that it is radically corruptive and the arrogance of Cain and the arrogance of Lamech seem far deeper than that of Adam yet they all stem from the same root a desire to choose disobedience to God it starts with Cain's sacrifice. We read here it's not the right sacrifice. It's not an acceptable sacrifice. And this disobedience flowed from the arrogant choice by Cain to give God what Cain wanted to give rather than what God required. God's righteous rejection of Cain's sinful offering set aflame an envy and an anger within Cain. And yet, God in His mercy warns Cain that true faith is expressed in obedience. He writes; he says here, God says to Cain, verse 6, Why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? True faith expressed in obedience that would bring him acceptance. Otherwise, sin is waiting like a robber in the night, like a wild animal ready to pounce because it's hungry for food. Cain tempted by the luring and enticing of his own desire. And when that desire is conceived, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So just as we looked at last week, just as James warns us, so Cain's actions continue in his sin. And it continues... to to bring about death and destruction with the murder of his brother, with the separation from God, with being cast out as a wanderer and a foreigner, the broken relationship with God, with His family, with the ground, creation. And yet, these should not be surprising. Sad, yes. But not surprising, because they're the same death we see in Genesis 3. The same death we looked at last Sunday. It's the death that continues on in humanity. And why would it not? Adam, as the representative of humanity, failed. He disobeyed. And therefore, humanity is cast into darkness and into sin. And it's shown not in just the fact that we inherit Adam's sin, but then we sin ourselves. Cain sins. Lamech sins. This is the reality of humanity. God's judgment tempered with temporary mercy is not surprising to us either. Just like with Adam and Eve, God does not crush Cain, does not utterly annihilate him and destroy him, though He could righteously do so. But lays a curse on him. Possibly so that Cain might see his sin and repent, yet Cain does not. His worry is temporal, not eternal. When I go away from you, someone might kill me. He does not not see the eternality of his sinful choices, but just the temporal, temporal reality, the temporal consequences. Will you guard me from physical death, yet missing the point that sin brings separation from God and eternal death awaits? Cain seems to be willing to accept his death between him and God, between him and his family, between him and the rest of creation, but not, to pos, uh, but not to the possibility of being murdered like Abel was. So God, by judgment, by mercy, marks him. and Cain will live and die by God's hand and by God's judgment, not by anyone else. Which brings us to Lamech, who breaks God's institution of marriage. Just like Cain disobeys in the sacrifice he brings, so we read that as God has instituted marriage between one man and one woman, we find that Lamech decides to take it upon himself to do something different. And So Lamech takes for himself two wives, we read. A direct disobedience from God's establishment of marriage. More than that, he also murders like Cain. Like Cain, Lamech seeks to sinfully act like God in bringing death to another human being. But unlike Cain, Lamech goes a step further and swears his own vengeance on anyone who would murder him. I mean, that's what God does with Cain. He marks him so that no one will murder him. And if someone does, God will revenge sevenfold that's what God tells us here, and yet what we see with Lamech is such arrogance. I mean, you realize if someone murders Lamech, Lamech would be dead. He wouldn't be able to do anything. He wouldn't be able to bring any kind of vengeance upon anyone. Yet this is the arrogance of sin. This is the arrogance of humanity trying to be like God. And humanity cannot, no matter how hard we try. God can revenge the death of Cain, but Lamech cannot revenge his own death. It is foolish. Utterly, utterly foolish. Yet all this sin is meant to serve as a backdrop for something truly amazing, something that is more stunning than the radical depth of humanity's sinfulness. It is found in the bookends of this section. Here we see, it begins with "In the Lord," in verse in verse four. Abel brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. Notice what this says. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his sacrifice. The Lord had regard. And it ends, the section ends with, and to Seth was also born a son, verse 26, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name. Of the Lord. These two phrases declare a reality far more glorious than the horrificness of humanity's sin. These two realities proclaim hope. Hope in what appears to be a dark, dark world of sin. They declare a power over sin and death that will continue to grow, will continue to expand until it is embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. Today, I want us to ask of this text. First of all, how is Abel, a man born into sin just like Cain? We have to understand, coming from Genesis 3, Abel is born into sin just like Cain. How how is Abel regarded and accepted by God. that's so important for us to understand. And then, why would sinful men begin to call on the name of the Lord? Then we will turn our attention to chapter 5 and see how this genealogy that affirms the rule of death over sinful humanity still bows itself to the power of the God of life. So we're going to look at chapter 4. We're going to focus in on Abel and then on these people beginning to call on the name of the Lord. And then as we go to chapter 5, we're going to see how, how death bows to the God of life. Let's pray. Father, we come to You and we ask Lord, that You give grace this morning to us. Grace to see Your power. Lord, we know we know the power of sin because each one of us here have experienced it. For we know the depths of of sin, the grip that sin has had on us. And so we come this morning to Genesis 4 and 5 desiring to see the power that Jesus Christ has over sin and over death. I pray that You would grant us eyes to see and ears to hear what You have for us today. That we, like redeemed Israel, would look here to Moses' writing and see the glories of Your Son, Jesus Christ as our hope. Lord, we pray this morning, not only as we meet, but also we pray that you would be with Harvest Bible Chapel here in Joliet, and Pastor Eric. We pray that you would be with Iglesia Camino El Cielo and Pastor Manuel. Lord, uh, be with Manuka Bible Church and Pastor Errol as they seek to present your word today. Lord, may they present it faithfully, and may they, along with us, celebrate the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ. We proclaim Him as Lord. Oh, may it be so, not just with our lips, but in our minds and in our hearts. May it affect our hands. May Jesus Christ be proclaimed as Lord through all of us. In His name we pray. Amen. First point today is this. We all need the power of Jesus to change us from sinners to saints. We all need the power of Jesus to change us from sinners to saints. So my first question was, how then is Abel regarded and accepted by God? There's a number of questions that I want to ask. The first one being this, is Abel sinless? I think we would rightly be able to answer that question. No, of course not. How do we know this? Well, we can look at Genesis 3 and see humanity's fall into sin. But also Paul tells us this. All writing in Romans 5 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those whose sin was not like the transgression of Adam who was a type of the one. Who was to come. What does Paul tell us? Paul tells us that Abel was not sinless. Abel was sinful. Just like Cain. Just like everyone else in humanity. So therefore, since Abel is sinful, how does God accept him? And again, I think we could rightly probably answer this question. But truly, the answer is by faith. It is by faith faith that God accepts Abel. And how do we know this? Well, we have the author of Hebrews in the New Testament who tells us this very thing. If you were to turn to Hebrews 11, I'm going to read the verse, so you can turn if you want, but if you were to turn to Hebrews 11:4, you would find this by faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Just like we understand of Abraham and everyone who comes to Christ, their faith is counted as righteousness. It is Abel's faith that God accepts that God counts as righteousness. Which causes me to ask another question. What was the object of Abel's faith? What was the object of Abel's faith? And as you've, you probably already know, the fact that was how we've approached Genesis, how we've approached it, based upon Moses' writing to the people of Israel, he had faith in the Redeemer. The Redeemer that we now know as Jesus Christ. The One who would atone for sinful humanity. Who would take the place. Who would be the substitute. How do we know this? Well, I think we glean this from Moses telling us this by the way he describes Abel's offering. Abel's offering is not something new to Moses and it's not something new to the Israelites who have been rescued from Egypt the fact that that Moses doesn't go into a depth of description is because he's writing to people who when they read what Abel brings as a sacrifice they know what it is they know what it is because God's law had been given to them and declared to them what this kind of sacrifice was we see here Abel brings the firstborn of his flock in verse 4 and of their fat portions. And as he brings those, the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. So as we remember that this is written to a redeemed Israel that now have the law been given to them by God at Mount Sinai, Abel's offering is consistent with the offering for atonement that God calls His people to give. And the fact is, Cain's was not. Cain's was not consistent with what God calls them to give as an atonement. And here we see a huge distinction between the relationship with God and Abel and the relationship with God and Cain. Abel, by faith, is offering a sacrifice. And the object of that sacrifice is the Redeemer. And the picture, the symbol, the representation of his trust in the Redeemer is that he sacrifices the firstborn of his flock as a symbol, as a representative of the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. We see this in the descriptions in Leviticus. Leviticus 1, the Lord God called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel. Say to them, when any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock if his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may, be acceptab- he may be accepted before God. Does that sound familiar? He shall lay his hands on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Or Leviticus 3, six. Through nine, If his offering for a sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord is an animal from the flock, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish. If he offers a lamb for his offering, then he shall offer it before the Lord. Lay his hands on the head of his offering and kill it in front of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's son shall throw its blood against the side of the altar. Then from the sacrifice of the peace offering, he shall offer as a food offering to the Lord its Fat. That sound familiar? What does Abel bring? He brings the first of his flock and the fat portions of it. Leviticus 17:11. Why is this necessary? For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life whereas hebrews 9:22 reminds us indeed under the law almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins this description this picture this animal sacrifice blood having to be shed is graphic and yet necessary Because it's only through the shedding of blood that atonement can be made. Ultimately pointing to the one Redeemer who would lay down His life. Who would shed His blood. In fact, we're going to celebrate today the symbol of the cup is is a symbol of the blood of Jesus. The new covenant given for us. We are remembering that Jesus is our atonement. And you know what? We see this reality, we see this truth all the way back in Genesis 4 with Abel. Abel's offering is consistent with Israel's understanding of an offering of atonement. Meaning Abel understood his sinfulness and his need of a substitute to bear his sin. And as I've already said, this Lamb is meant to represent the Redeemer who would come as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. The writer of Hebrews continues to write regarding Christ, but when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats or calves, but by the means of His own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. For the blood of goats and bulls, and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ash of the heifer, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The the right understanding of the sacrificial system by the Jews was that one would come that, that, that the lambs were just representative of one who would come. We're told in Hebrews 9, Jesus Christ who would take away sins completely and utterly. Old covenant saints knew that the animal sacrifices were not enough. But through them, they looked by faith to the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Therefore, God amazingly regards and accepts a sinner and his sacrifice made by faith in his Redeemer. Abel is turned from sinner to saint by faith in the redeeming promise of Jesus Christ. He turns from his sin, placing his sin on Jesus, and in turn receives the righteousness of Jesus that comes by faith abel is justified by faith in jesus christ just like we are in turn this conversion reality is passed on from abel to others as they began to call upon the name of the lord and we actually have the writer of hebrews who tells us that while abel was dead he still spoke this First martyr whose death, like other martyrs, brought others to faith in Jesus Christ. We all need this power of Jesus to change us. Abel's not the only one who needed a substitute. We all need a substitute because we are all condemned under sin. And the only one who can save us, the only one who has the power to make us acceptable before God, to take us from being sinners under God's condemnation to saints accepted by God is Jesus Christ. He's the only one with that power. Number two, we all need the power of Jesus to give us life over death. Genesis 5 tells us the genealogy of Adam to Noah. It does not tell us the genealogy of the world, but rather it tells us very specifically, gives us a very specific line. It focuses in on the specific line of, of men. Alfred Erdsheim writes this These primeval genealogies are monuments alike of the faithfulness of God in the fulfillment of his promise and of the faith and the patience of the fathers. Every generation lived its appointed time. They transmitted the promise to their sons, and then, having finished their course, they all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced Him and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth, as we're told in Hebrews chapter 11. This repetition, and He died, and He died, and He died, continues throughout. Throughout this lineage, you can see here, Adam, verse 3, lived 130 years. He fathered a son in his own likeness after his image, named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived, 105 he fathered Enosh, and Seth lived after he fathered Enosh eight hundred and seven years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth are nine hundred twelve years, and he died. You know, we think ninety is good. When Enosh lived ninety years, most of us are dying. He fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan eight hundred and fifteen years, had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enosh were nine hundred five years, and he died. You kind of get the theme here? Kinnah lived 70 years. He fathered Mahalalel. That's fun to say. Uh, Kenna lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years. He had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Kinnah were 910 years, and he died. And we see here this continued repetition of death. And, and, and here we see the specific line of God's blessing. Still lived under the curse of sin. Just like Abel was a sinner who needed a Redeemer, so all of them lived under sin. And so what is the curse of sin? It is death. And he died, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. With one exception. Look at verse 21. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God. After he fathered Methuselah, 300 years, he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Interesting, all of this repetition, and he died, and he died, and he died, and then we come to Enoch, and something is different. And because of that difference, it's something we need to take note. We go to Hebrews 11, and the author of Hebrews again writes He writes about Enoch in verse 5-6, and and he says, By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. Remember the repetition? And he died, and he died, and he died. He was taken up so he would not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. As we come here, we see this distinction with Enoch. We must realize that man was made by God to live. And living is walking with God. And surely this life described here of, regarding Enoch is a godly life lived by faith, believing God, and therefore following God. And, and that is what God created man to do is to live, not die. And here in Genesis 5, we see this glimmer of light, glimmer of hope, beyond just the fact that there is a Redeemer being given, but the fact that God's power is greater than the death that exists because of sin. It's shown right here. Sin and death are not parallel foes to God, as if they were on the same level with the same power, In the world today, God is not in a wrestling match with sin and death. We're wondering who's going to win. Will God be strong enough? He says He is. We'll see. No, that's not how it is. From before creation, God had planned the end of sin and death. He planned it. He planned the defeat of sin and death at the hands of Jesus Christ. There is no question in God's mind. And right here in Genesis 5, we get a little glimpse of this reality. God says, I don't want Enoch to die. So he's not going to. Because God has the power over life and death. This is a power He has. He owns. He controls. It is not out of His hands. And while the natural progression because of sin is that we die, we die, we die, we die, we die, die, Enoch declares to us that God has the power to give life over death. We see that also with Elijah. God has the power to give life over death. But ultimately, ultimately in God's plan, most of us will experience physical death. Our hope ultimately, though, is not that like Enoch, we will somehow be relieved from physical death, but that there is an eternal Life that awaits, and that the power that is able to keep Enoch from death is also the power that is able to give us eternal life. We see this in what Jesus says. I'm just going to quote just a a few from John. Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. John 10:10. Or John 6.35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Or John 11.25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. Or John 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus holds the power of life over death he has the power to change people and he has the power to give us life the life that we desperately need because our sinfulness has brought us death jesus brings us life and it's declared here in genesis 5 where he shifts he shifts all of, all of what's going on. And though all the others die, yet Enoch lives because Jesus has the power over life. So what should we know? Only the power of Jesus can change us from sinners to saints. Only the power of Jesus can make us acceptable before God. Only the power of Jesus can give us life over the death that we deserve as sinners. And You are always and forever dependent on Jesus for your acceptance and your life. It's what we're meant to know. We are always and forever dependent on Jesus to be accepted before God. To have this new life that He brings to us. This victory over death. We are dependent on the power of Jesus Christ. So how should we then live How should we walk in this life if we know these things? It's Abel's faith in God's Redeemer that led him to offer an obedient sacrifice. It's Enoch's faith that led him to walk with God and draw near to God and live as God's required. Therefore, their faith produced obedience. Now maybe you need to have faith in Jesus Christ. Believing who He is. The Son of God who became a man. Believing what He did. That He lived uh, among us to die for our sins and a cross and to rise again to victory over sin and death. To believe how He saves us not through any works of our own. Not through trying to be a better me. But rather by turning from our sins and trusting only in the work of Jesus Christ alone. Maybe you need... To have faith in Jesus Christ. That is the first step. That is the entrance into Christianity. Acceptance before God is faith in Jesus Christ and what He has done turning from our sins to Him. Now maybe you have faith in Jesus Christ. You're here today with this faith. So I would ask you, are you striving to walk with Him? Like the example of Enoch, are you drawing near To your God. Are you living in obedience to Him and what He has called you to? Like the example of Abel who by faith offered the obedient sacrifice. God has called you just like He called Abel and Enoch out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of His Son to live for Him and further His kingdom. We are dependent on the power of Jesus Christ. To be accepted before God and to live the life that God gives. So will you live for Him? Let us pray. Father, we thank You for Your Son, Jesus Christ. The fact that we know Him the fact that we hear Him proclaimed and the fact that many of us here have put our trust in Him. Oh, how gloriously good You are to us. Left to our sins, we would truly be like Cain, destitute of life. Eternal life. No relationship with You and yet in Your grace, you have presented with us with Jesus Christ so that we might be acceptable before You. Lord, may we glory in what Jesus has done for us. May He, may he be celebrated today as we, as we sing now, as we go into communion. Lord, may we just revel in how amazing the power of Jesus is to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.